Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. And uh, so what I'm looking forward to this, this message this morning, of course, we're, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. Now, if you remember, I want to remind you where we're at in the book of Acts because it has been a couple weeks. In Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are at the temple. They're going there to preach the gospel, to witness to people. And as they go there, uh, they meet a lame man who has been begging. And he's, he's been lame his entire life. And so he asks them for money. And they say, we don't have any money, but we have something even better than that for you. And they, they heal him through Jesus Christ. And this great healing, of course, it draws a crowd because this lame man, who, remember, before this very moment, has never been allowed in the temple. Because of the Jewish law, lame people, sick people, crippled people were not allowed in the temple. So this lame man, he's been lame his entire life. So he had never been in the temple. And remember in Jewish custom, when your child was eight days old, you would take them to the temple to be blessed by the priest. He never had that. He's never been to enjoy the presence of God and the fellowship of God's people. And so, but now he's healed and he's able to enter the temple for the first time in his life. And he's excited. He's jumping around. He's causing a scene and people in the temple, they recognize that guy because again, every day he's at the temple begging. They know who he is. They know he's been lame his entire life. They see him healed. They see him jumping up and down. And so it draws a crowd. And people are like, well, how, Peter, John, how did you do this? And of course, Peter, I love Peter's brashness. You know, they say, how did you do this? Who's who, you know, what, what happened? And he says, look, we didn't do this because of our goodness or because of our piety. It's not our holiness. We healed this man through the power of Jesus Christ. And he goes, you remember Jesus, that guy you murdered who rose again He is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah, and he gave us the power to do this. And so he's preaching the gospel. 3,000 people accept Christ as their Savior on that incredible day because of that incredible miracle. But the Sadducees are watching all this, and they're upset because they were part of the group and part of the leadership that had Jesus killed in the first place. And now we got Peter and John preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is resurrected. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that the Messiah would be resurrected. They didn't believe anybody would be resurrected. And so now Peter and John are not only teaching contrary to what they teach, but they're getting a crowd. They're getting people to believe them. They are getting converts. And so it's a threat to their leadership. So they arrest them. They throw them in in a holding cell in the temple, which I always found odd. You know, I, I, you know, I wasn't around when, when this church was, was physically built, but I've looked at the blueprints and nowhere on the blueprints is there a, a holding cell. So I don't know, when they're building the temple, they're like, hey, we gotta, you know, we gotta have the altar, we gotta have all this, gotta, but don't forget the prison cells downstairs for those, those unruly worshipers. Maybe we should have that. That's where you stick the unruly kids. They go to the prison cell. But so they're thrown in the temple prison cell and they hold them overnight because they're, they're talking about what they can do. And they, they literally say, we can't hurt them because too many people saw what happened. 
Too many people saw that this, and they agreed, they're like, this is a legitimate miracle. They, we can't deny it. This crippled guy won't stop jumping around and shouting. People know that he was crippled. They know, so he can't deny it. So they, the next day they bring him together and they bring the crippled guy there too. And again, he's just hopping around going, woo I'm great. And they're like, please stop. Somebody break his legs again. But they ask Peter and John, they say, why did you do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? And Peter, again, love Peter's preaching. He says, if you're going to criticize us for being good, I'll take it. But we didn't do this through our power or our holiness. We did it through the power that of Jesus Christ, the one you murdered, that God raised from the dead, that has ascended to high, and he is coming to get his own. And so he preaches the gospel to them again, not caring. I mean, he's pointing, you killed this guy. You murdered him, but God rose him. He's the true Messiah. He gave us the authority. You can't deny it. There's nothing you can do. And so basically... The Pharisees and Sadducees get together and they're like, okay, what are we going to do about these guys? Again, we can't publicly punish them for, for healing a guy. I mean, how would that make us look if we're punishing people for doing good? We can't deny the miracle because, again, everyone has seen, everyone knows this guy was crippled. Everyone knows this guy was healed and he won't shut up. So we can't deny it. We can't punish them. So what they do is they, they tell Peter and John, all right, we're going to let you go. But if you continue preaching Jesus, if you continue preaching that Jesus was God in the flesh, who, was, who died on the cross, was crucified, buried, and rose three days later, if you continue doing that, we're going to be real mad, and then we're going to punish you. So they, they let them go. And so Peter and John and this new convert, they go back to gather with the other believers. Now, the church in the first century, the church we're looking at in the book of Acts, they were the most successful church in human history. And they did it with none of the modern-day advantages that, that we take for granted today. They had no building. They had no budget. They had no, you know, uh, technology and sound systems. And they didn't even have print. How many of y'all right now, I, I, you may have it on your phone, but I'm going to ask for your, your copy. How many of y'all have a copy, a book copy of the Word of God in your hands right now? Let me see it. Hold it up. Hold it up. They didn't have that. You know why? Because they were living it. They didn't have the book of Acts to study. They were in the book of Acts. Plus, their leaders, if, if Peter and John and Paul, and well, Paul may have been able to get one, but if Peter and John and the first group of church leaders, if they had the same qualifications they did then, today, they would never get a church job. No one would hire them. Peter's a cussing fisherman. Most of them are criminals who spent time in jail. They had no Bible college education, which as a Bible college graduate, I can say, doesn't really matter. Uh, they didn't have ordinations and all that. They had none of the qualifications that we think people have to have. But they were the most successful church in history. What was their secret? They knew how to pray. Um, they knew how to pray so that God would work through them. That was the secret 
to their success. Charles Spurgeon was once asked by a, he was being interviewed by a Christian uh, newspaper and they were asking him what was the, the key to the success of his church. You know what he said? My people pray for me. My people pray for me. Wonder why, wonder how many of y'all pray for me. I'm just, I, I know you do. I know some of y'all pray bad things for me, Susan. But he said, my people pray for me. Warren Worsby, in his book on the, the, the book of Acts, uh, Be Dynamic, he says, prayer is not an escape from responsibility. It is our response to God's ability. True prayer energizes us for service and battle. So we're going to look at, in Acts chapter 4, where we're looking today, we're going to start reading in verse 23. Go ahead and get there. Again, what we're reading right now, Peter and John healed a man, were arrested, preached the gospel, 3,000 people get saved, we're, we're, we're told, do not do this again or we're going to punish you severely. They go back to the church, the group of people, they're in the upper room and they're meeting, and this is the, the meeting that they have after this threat to either shut up or suffer the consequences. Look at verse number 23. <clears throat> and being let go, they went to, their own, went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice with one accord and said, stop. First thing I want you to notice, what is the first thing they did when they were facing danger? Pray. They didn't panic. They didn't try to come up with a plan or a new strategy. They prayed. What, what would we have done? I think mostly if, if we were there, and Peter and John come back and say, hey, we were preaching at the temple. We healed a dude. We were kind of in their face. You killed Jesus. It was so funny. Ha ha. By the way, they said we better shut up or we're going to be punished. I think what we would have done is like, you know what? Maybe Peter and John shouldn't serve together anymore. Let's, let's separate them. Or go to Peter and say, hey, Peter, look, I love your zeal, man. But maybe this you killed Jesus stuff isn't flying. Maybe let's change how much, how we, how in their face we are, but that's not what they did. They prayed. That, was the, that is the natural response to walking in the Spirit. Prayerlessness is not a discipline problem. It's a Spirit of God problem. That wasn't me. Well, look at me, my phone's off. <clears throat> walking in the Spirit is remembering that daily that you can do nothing without God. My, when I realize that I need God in my marriage, in my child rearing, in my pastoring, in my dealing with people, then prayer becomes as natural as breathing. It's instinct. Because I realize I have to have God for everything. It is living in the truth of the gospel. Look, most believers think that the gospel is only for salvation. Hey, uh, 
Majesty, Omega, and Jasmine, y'all come up here. Come on, come on. Stand up and come forward. You too, Jasmine. Let's go. This, I, this is just for Randy because he likes flashcards. So I got a couple of them. All right. <clears throat> All right. You take that and go over there. Stand right here like this. All right. Jasmine, you stand right here like this. All right. All right. Face him. All right. What does her sign say? The gospel. What does his sign say? The victorious Christian life. All right, come here, Omega. You're the, you're the, you're the last, so you're the best. All right, so here's Omega. He's, he's a regular old sinner. All right? Don't look at, that's what the Bible says, not me. All right? So he's coming along life. He's a sinner. He's, he's going to hell and deserving it. Amen? But he, he encounters the gospel. Okay? He, he, he comes up, what is the gospel? I'm going to what is the gospel? No. That's the truth of the gospel. The gospel is understanding that Omega, in his own ability, in his own power, can do nothing to save himself. So he trusts the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to save him. Most believers, we get saved, woo got the gospel. And then we know, now he's got a good pastor who says, all right, Omega, you're saved now. That's where you're trying to go. You're trying to go to the victorious Christian life. Don't have time to get into this. That's not heaven, all right? Because in the victorious Christian life, there's battles, there's no battles in heaven. That is just living for Jesus. And so I tell him, that's what you got to do. And so Omega, he keeps trying to walk there. But you know what? He keeps failing. Takes two steps forward, one step back. Why can't you get there? Go. Go. Why can't you get there? All right. Here's why he can't get there. Because he forgot the truth of the gospel. Again, what's the gospel? He can do nothing without Jesus. So what he needs to do is come back here and grab the gospel. Just a sign. You don't got to grab your sister. All right. And, and as he's walking, he thinks... I can, I can do that on my own, can I? So keep going. Oh, no, you can't. And then he remembers, no, I need Jesus. And so as he's going and faces trouble, oh, I need Jesus. So living in the gospel is living in the truth that you need, not just for salvation. You need him for everything. You need him to, to have a decent marriage. Look, there are, there are a lot of movies, a lot of books out there and shows out there. That Dr. Phil wants to tell you, how, you know how you have a good marriage? The gospel. Living in the truth that without Jesus, you can't do anything. All right, y'all can go see. You, I'm, don't keep my sign. It's my sign. All right. So, that, that was just for Randy right there. <laughs> One of the... Have some flashcards. i got to figure out flashcards every week now. Maybe I'll just have my verse up there. I don't know. But anyway, so that walking in the Spirit is realizing that no matter, no matter how long you've been saved, I don't care if you've been saved um, 50 years or if you've been saved 50 minutes, you can never forget the truth that you need Jesus not just for your salvation, 
but for everything in your life. That is, and when you realize that, you realize, I better be praying over everything. That's why Paul can say, pray without ceasing. Does he mean that we got to become monks and get on our knees and shave our heads and pray 24-7? No. He just means live in the realization that you need God for every part of your life. And if you don't have him, you're going to fail. So you better be talking to him over everything. That's what the first church understood. We need God for everything. Don't try hard. So look, you're, you're struggling with your prayer life. Don't try harder to pray. Realize I got to have Jesus for everything and it will make you pray. Go back where you realize how desperate you are for the Spirit's power. Now, let's start reading in verse number 24 again. Because we ain't even got to point one. And uh, we're 30 minutes in this thing. No, we're not. But, all right, so back to verse number 24. <clears throat> and when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. And who by thy mouth, thy servant David, has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his church, uh, his, against his Christ. For if of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and, uh, and thy counsel determined to be done beforehand. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants. All right, stop reading. Look up here quick. Lewis, stop reading. Everybody stop reading. Grant to thy servants. Grant to thy servants what? I don't want you to look yet because you're going to cheat. I'm going to tell you. So they're praying. They're praying Psalms 2. We're going to look at it in a minute. But they're praying Psalms 2 and they say, God, we know you're in control. We know you've got everything, a purpose for this and a plan for this. And Lord, we trust you. And God, we just want you to grant us safety. That's not what they pray. God, grant us new politicians. It's not what they pray. Look, Look at it now. Now you can read it. Grant unto thy servants boldness. Boldness. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So they say, God, they're threatening us. They're persecuting us. They're, they're, they're going to destroy us, God. Because we were bold to preach the gospel. So God... Give us boldness so we can keep preaching the gospel. Give us boldness to do what got us in trouble in the first place. What do you pray for when you're in pain and persecution? What do you pray for when you're in a trial? Usually we pray for protection. We pray for deliverance. But before praying for a positive outcome... Before they said, God, protect us and give us grace and Lord, watch over us. Before they prayed for a positive outcome around them, they prayed for a faithful spirit within them. They said, God, if we're left to ourselves, we're going to get cowardly and stop. 
Peter is one praying. You know how Peter knew that? Because just 50 days earlier, Peter was standing by a fire watching Jesus on trial. And someone came up to him and said, aren't you one of his followers? Oh, I ain't one of his. So Peter knew, God, if you don't give me boldness, I'm going to back down. So God, they're, they're, they're persecuting me because I'm preaching the gospel. So give me boldness so I keep doing what you want me to do instead of what they want me to stop doing. They asked for divine enablement, not escape. And God gave them the power they needed. Philip Brooks says this. He says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for task equal to your powers. Pray for power equal to your tasks. See, they saw, what if we saw that more important than easing our pain or easing our situation, what if we said, God, it's more important that people come to know you as their savior than my pain being taken away. It's more important people hear the gospel than I get released from this, this trial that I'm in. They prayed for God to use the problems for his glory and for his kingdom. They prayed for boldness. Now look at verse number 30. I'm not going to make you stop again, I promise. By stretching forth our hand, no, I'm stopping, no, I'm kidding. By stretching forth a hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child, Je child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Because the first church, this is the first obstacle that they are facing in this young church life. They've been, they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They preach Pentecost and 5,000 people get saved. They heal a man and yes, they're getting persecuted. They're, they're being drugged into prison, but they're not being beaten yet. They're just being told, you better stop or we're going to beat you. And basically the Sadducees said, look, we can't do anything against you. So if you would just please shut up about that whole we killed God stuff, that'd be great. And if not, we'll have to think of something else. And, and this, so this is the first persecution they're facing. And it's not really a big one. They spend a night in prison, but that's it. Then they get out. They're not beaten. They're not, they're not suffering. They're released. And they go and they say, God, give us boldness. And God answered their prayer. And because they prayed this way, and because God answered their prayer, the gospel went out to the entire world. Because they prayed this way, the gospel eventually made it to us so that we could hear the wonderful truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that we can do nothing to save ourselves, and we have to rely on his finished work on the cross as payment for our sins. But where did their boldness come from? And why don't we have it today? If the, if the, the city of Roanoke or the state of Virginia or the United States came in and said, you have to stop preaching that Jesus is the risen Savior, or we're going to throw you in prison. I can tell you right now, I'm going to keep preaching. But then they may come with cuffs and I may change my tune. It's easy to say I'll do that when there's not a, a threat of cuffs. 
When there's, there's really no threat of me going to prison for preaching the gospel. It's easy to say, I'll never stop preaching it. But when they come up and they got FBI agents or SWAT teams and they got cuffs and say, we're throwing you in federal prison if you don't shut up. Part of me is going to go, shut up. Don't, you can't leave your wife and kids and go to prison. Just shut up. You got responsibilities. I'd like to say, I'm going to keep preaching as they take me away. We'd all like to say that. So it's like, we like to say, man, if someone said, held a gun to my head and said, you either re, 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 reject Jesus or die, we'd like to say, kill me. You know why we can say that? Because no one's got a gun to your head. But if it's to my head, I think I can say, go ahead and kill me. I don't care. I'm going to heaven. All right, what if they got a gun to your wife's head? Reject Jesus or I kill her. Your kids. We can all say, well, we know what the Lord's going to do. We know he's going to be in heaven. It's easy to say when it's not reality. This church, it was reality. And they had boldness. So where did that boldness come from? First thing we notice is number one. Go ahead, Connor. It's next slide. They trusted in God's sovereignty. Look at how they start this prayer in verse number 24. Lord, thou art God. Lord, thou art God. Then look what they finish up in verse 28. For whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel to be done. The word Lord there is the Greek word despotes. It's where we get our English word despot. Y'all know what a despot is? It's not despot. It's a, it's a ruler. It's an all-powerful ruler of a nation. Typically, when we think of a despot, we think of people like, you know, Vladimir Putin, who will never hear this message because he's blocked the internet in, my, in there. And even if he did, I don't care, Putin. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, we think of Putin or Kim Jong mentally ill or these people. You know, those are despots. They are violent rulers. But what makes them a despot, according to Greek, is not that they are violent. It's that they are all powerful. A despot in the Greek culture could be a benevolent ruler who takes care of their, their subjects, but still they have ultimate authority. So a, it is a ruler that exercises absolute power. This is the same word that Simeon used when he prayed over Jesus as a baby in the temple. Simeon recognized this is the all-powerful Lord. You know, when facing trials, it's good to know that the all-powerful, sovereign Lord is ultimately in control of everything. They knew that whatever was happening was according to His plan. That it was under His control. We all know Psalm 46.10, right? Be still and know that I am God. We know that verse. We claim that verse. We love that verse. How many of y'all know the end of that verse? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, we miss the point of that verse. 
The point of that verse isn't stopping in moments of, of crisis or stopping in the, the, the worst parts of life and saying, okay, I'm going to be still and just trust God. It is looking at those difficult times and saying, you are God. You are in control. No matter what I'm going through, you're going to be exalted. You're going to be lifted up. You're going to be glorified. Your name is going to go forward through this problem somehow. It is saying, God, yes, I'm suffering and I hate it, but you're in control and you're going to use my suffering for your glory and I'm okay with that. I trust that. That's what the first church understood. Everything in life, good and bad, is sovereignly ordered by God for his mission. So what be still and know that I am God means is before you try to fix your problem, reflect on the sovereignty of God in your problem. In every problem, in every setback, pray, God, you anointed this to happen for your purpose. God, you turn tragedies into triumphs. All my difficulties are under your dominion. So show me how you're going to use this for your glory and make me bold enough to point you to people even while I'm suffering. They trusted the sovereignty of God. Second thing they did is they knew God's word. Number two, Connor. Next slide. They knew God's word. This wasn't just a random prayer. It was based on the truth in God's word. Again, it's found in, in uh, Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We read it earlier. I wasn't going to read it now, but for the second time, I'm not. We already looked at it. You can look at it again. Psalms 2, verses 1 through 6. This psalm, Psalms chapter 2, it describes the revolt of the nation's around Israel, but mainly the nations in Israel. Because if you remember, Israel was really 12 nations that were kind of made up the nation of Israel. They were 12 tribes, but they all acted very independently. They fought amongst each other all the time. And so they each had their own kind of mini king who was supposed to be under the king over all of Israel. Well, David is anointed king over all of Israel. And all the other kings of the nations or the, kings, the leaders of the tribes are supposed to come to Jerusalem and really not bow down to him, but not to kind of worship him, but basically to say, we recognize your authority. We put ourselves in subjection to you. So when the king was throned, all royalty came to submit to the new king, but many in the nation of Israel refused to do this. They refused to submit to David because they remembered Saul, how much trouble he caused. It's like, we're not submitting to that guy. We're in control of our own nation. So what Psalm 2 is, it is God laughing at their revolt of the king. Because God is saying, you can refuse to come and submit to David, but there's a king coming that everybody, every knee is going to bow down to. And every tongue is going to confess. So you can refuse to, to submit to David, but he's just a picture of the future coming king that no matter what you do, you're going to submit to him. So God is laughing at kind of their rejection of God. You know, believers in Acts chapter 4, they were claiming this promise. 
They were going to God and saying, God, this isn't the first time people have rejected you, Lord. And they're praying Psalms chapter 2, which you know what it tells me? It tells me they knew Psalm chapter 2. They knew the promise of God found in the Bible, so they were able to pray that promise. Eugene Peterson says, true prayer is not just talking to God. It is answering God. God has already spoken his word and prayer is a response to what he has already said. You know, y'all heard it this week and I've read it. There, the, there are over 3,000 promises of God in the Bible that apply to you. Do we know them? How many do we know? Do we know all 3,000? Because look, there, there's only, there's, people say there's more than 3,000. You know why? Because we really don't know the full number. But we cannot pray the promises of God or claim the promises of God if we don't know the promises of God. The first church, they had boldness because they trusted God, but they also knew God's word. Third thing, they knew that Jesus was the true hero. Our world has a strange definition of heroes. Next slide, Connor. I asked several people this week, when you hear the word hero, or you think of a hero, what do you think of? Hey, guys, we can hear y'all out here. When you think of a hero, what do you think about? I got a lot of answers. Bucky Barnes. Who knows who Bucky Barnes is? All right, he's a superhero in the Marvel Universe. Spider-Man, he's a hero. Superman, I got one Supergirl, and I got a Taylor Swift. <laughs> T-Swift is a lot of things, a hero she is not. The media has a, strong, a strange idea of heroes. The media, one time, they called Jodie Foster a hero because Jamie Lee Curtis was in an accident, a car accident, a very minor car accident. Airbags deployed, but she was going less than 15 miles an hour, didn't have a scratch, but as a precaution and because she's Jodie Foster and can afford the $1,000 ambulance ride, they took her to the ambulance to check her out. And they called, uh, they called Jodie uh, Foster a hero because she rode with her friend to the hospital. Her friend wasn't severely hurt, but she's a hero because she rode to the hospital with her. That, that's not a hero. Brad Pitt was once called a hero because he pulled a man out of the water. Now, you think, man, he saved the man who was drowning. No, he didn't. The guy wasn't drowning. The guy fell off a dock into two-foot water, was standing there, water to his knees, and Brad Pitt helped him on the dock, and that made him a hero. That's not a, a big... Gwyneth Paltrow... Oh, this is my favorite. Gwyneth Paltrow, on September 11th, 2001... She hit a woman with her car. Didn't hurt her severely, didn't kill her or nothing, but she kind of, she broke the woman's ankle. But this woman was on her way to work at the World Trade Center. And because Gwyneth Paltrow ran her down with a car, she missed it and, and survived. She called her hero. I'm going to go hit people with cars and say, I'm trying to save you from something that's worse down the road. I mean, hitting someone with a car is meaning. She didn't, she didn't hit her because she knew it was coming. She didn't run into the world trade. You know who the true heroes were on that day? The men and women, the firemen and policemen who went in there to rescue people and gave their lives for it. That's a true hero. 
Hitting someone with your car and just by chance keeping them from an accident does not make you a hero. Makes you a hit and run driver, in my opinion. But anyway, see, these aren't heroes, they're celebrities. Heroes are drastically different than celebrities. See, heroes, they deflect praise while celebrities crave it. Heroes edify uh, other things while celebrities entertain. Celebrities, they surround themselves with crowds by heroes typically walk alone. See, celebrities consult focus groups and heroes consult their own conscience. I want you to look over in Acts chapter 5. We're going to read verse 31 and 32. <coughs> Acts chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Then the God of our fathers... Raised up Jesus again. Now remember, Peter preaching here. Peter just got told, stop preaching, we killed God. Peter goes praise for boldness, God gives it to him. Next thing Peter does, goes preaching and says, you remember God who you killed? Anyway, then God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The word prince there is the Greek word archegos. Archegos. It literally means the chief leader. It's used in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 and there it's translated captain. Now, in other Greek writings, this same Greek word or Hagos is used to describe a hero or a champion. Hercules is called a Arhagos. He is called a hero. Now, Greek heroes were thought to be heroes because of their power. Peter gives the same title to Jesus because Jesus is a true hero, but is a different kind of hero. Hercules used his power to defeat enemies. Now, I know Hercules is not real. I'm talking about the myth. Hercules, in the myth, used his power to defeat his enemies. Jesus didn't use his power to defeat his enemies. He rejected his power, and he died in weakness to save his enemies. And that changes how we view ourselves because we see that Jesus, the almighty, sovereign Lord, the true hero, he gave his life to save us. So what Peter and them were saying is, look, Jesus gave his life for us. We are eager and willing to give our life so that others can hear about him. If God raised Jesus in power, then he will make his plan succeed through our pain and suffering. Fourth thing that made them bold is number four, they were generous. Look back at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. We're going to look a little bit more at this next week because I don't want to get too much into it. But said so the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which they possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many were as in possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the prices to the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according to what he needed. So there, again, we're going to look at this next week a little bit more. But their boldness in witnessing, 
their boldness and their eagerness to go out and boldly proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God in the flesh. He was killed for our sins. He was buried and rose three days later. The, the boldness of witnessing was an extension of their generosity in life. They shared their stuff freely. So when boldness... They're willing to share their property and their food. And they, they're willing to look at their life and say, look, I got this plot of land I'm not using. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to give it to the poor. And I'm going to be willing to use it. for. They can use it for whatever they want to. When they're willing to give up stuff for the gospel, when persecution and suffering came, then they say, look, if I'll give up my stuff, I'll gladly give up my comfort. I am willing to suffer that the message can go forth and people can be saved. They believe that getting the message to others was more important than their safety. Again, look at verse 33 in chapter 4. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here's what I want you to notice. And great grace was upon them all. They were so aware of the grace that they had received from God that they gave it to everyone they encountered. You cannot be changed by the gospel and not be incredibly generous to others. Here's the next thing we want to see, the final thing. The fifth thing that made them bold is number five, they were filled with the Spirit. Again, in answer to their prayer, they pray. Bible says the place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came so powerfully that the, the place they were at, there was an earthquake. Why was this significant? Whenever God came to earth before the resurrection, whenever God came to earth, it was terrifying. Remember the story of Moses on Mount Sinai? God, his presence is on earth, on Mount Sinai. He invites the entire nation of Israel to come up on top of Mount Sinai and enjoy his presence and receive the law of God from him. And the entire nation of Israel says, that's too scary. We ain't going. So Moses goes alone. When God shows up, people are terrified. But this time, when the presence of God shows up, it's not terrifying. It's empowering. Remember when Jesus died? There was an earthquake. Remember when Jesus was resurrected? Guess what there was? Another earthquake. Now, they're not shaking with fear, but they're shaking with boldness and worship towards God. They're shaking because the God, the one who saved us, now lives in us. And if God is in us, and if God is for us, who cares what the world says? If God be for us, who can be against us? Because they knew, look, even if the Sadducees and Pharisees killed them, you know where they were going? They were going to heaven with Jesus. So they're like, look, you can't, you can't threaten me with heaven. Kill me and send me there early. But I'm not shutting up. They knew that God was with them. Look what happens after the shaking. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. The more the place was shaken with the presence of God, the less the believers were shaken with fear. These believers knew they needed to be filled with the Spirit of God often. So here's what I ask you. 
When was the last time you asked God to fill you with the Spirit? Peter and John needed it time and time and time and time again. Peter and John needed frequent fillings of the Holy Spirit. But we don't need it. We're better Christians than Peter and John. You know, the important part of the, the Christian life is being filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's often overlooked. Because look, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the Holy Spirit one time. At salvation, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit frequently. Why? Because you, you lose, he, he kind of drains out of you. No, he doesn't drain out of you. You just stop relying on him. You grieve him. You quench him. You offend him. And so his power isn't as strong in your life. So you need to be filled to get that power back. Fullness, you know, filling with the Holy Spirit is like food for our soul. It's important as breathing. Without fullness of the Holy Spirit, you will never be bold. See, fullness of the Spirit doesn't change your relationship with God. No matter what, if you're saved, you are a son or a daughter of the King. But it makes you more aware of your relationship with God. Again, the first church was the most persecuted church in history. But it was the boldest in history because they believed in God's sovereignty. They knew the Bible. They knew who the true hero was. They were generous and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That made them bold enough to face anything that came their way and share the message of salvation to everyone they could. Where do we start getting boldness to share the gospel? Five things, real quick. I'm going to run through them real fast. Five things you can do today to have boldness to share the gospel. First of all, say something when saying nothing would be easier. You're talking to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, and they're telling you about the troubles they're having in life, the problems in their marriage, the problems at home, whatever. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, they start talking about how trouble they're having in their marriage. You get up and say, well, let me tell you, Jesus is God and you killed him. Don't pull a Peter. But, here, but you can say, hey, you know what? I, I'm so sorry. Can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? Hey, let me, I know you may not, I know you may not go to church, but look, the, this is a, a Bible verse that's really comforted me. Let me, let me share this with you. It'd be easier to say, oh, that sucks. Sorry. Say something. When the spirit of God moves in your heart and says, hey, maybe you should say something about me. When the spirit moves, obey the spirit. Second thing, take advantage of opportunities when they come up. Pray for people when a need arises. Share your story of salvation. Look, I know a lot of us were so scared. We, you know, pe preacher starts talking about witnessing to people. You think, oh, I gotta, I gotta know the Romans road. I gotta know, you know, uh, how to, to go through the Romans road and this verse and that verse and all that stuff. Do you know what? When when Paul, who was the the, the his, his 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 he is recorded as witnessing the Bible more than anyone else. When he witnessed, not one time did he say, "Let me take you to Romans chapter three, verse twenty-three." You know what Paul said? I was a sinner headed to hell. One day I was walking on the road to Damascus. God knocked me off my, my donkey. I met Jesus and I got saved. You know what he told He just told him his testimony. He just said, hey, this is what happened to me. Let me tell you about it. Maybe it can happen to you. That's what's, what witnessing is. Just share your testimony. Share your story of, opportunity, of salvation. Fourth, third thing to do. 
Create opportunities to be bold. Get to know your neighbors. Get to know your neighbors so you can pray for them. Invite them over for a barbecue if the weather ever gets warm enough. I know it was 80 degrees, you know, two days ago, and now it's freezing. Hopefully we'll get some good weather. Invite them over to, 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 to have a campfire or a, a pit fire pit with you and get to know your neighbors, get to know your coworkers and, and just say, hey, just be, give you opportunities to be bold. Because look, if you know someone well, if you know your neighbor well and they're going through a tough time and you have a relationship with them, you can, you have the right to say, let me tell you what the Bible says. This may help you, may not. You have the right to, if you don't know them and you just hear your neighbors having a tough time, go knock on the door and say, let me tell you what the Bible says. You ain't got no right to do that. Yeah, I mean, you're, that's bold. I mean, that's bold. But they're going to shut the door in your face. Create opportunities to be bold. Fourth thing to do, get involved in missions. Give generously to, to missions, worldwide missions and local missions. You know, get involved locally. You know, one of the greatest missions we have here at the church is the community cupboard in the closet. Every two weeks, April has people from all over the community come over. And look, I've met some of them. Some of them are the sweetest people in the world, are believers. Some of them, they need Jesus. Badly. First of all, how, pray for the community. Pray for opportunities for us to witness people. But maybe you can say, you know what? I got, a, I got a couple Fridays off. I can come and I can help people look through clothes. And as we're looking through clothes, say, hey, can I pray with you? Hey, can I share something with you? Get involved in local missions. Get involved in world missions. Fourth, fifth thing to do, pray for it. Just pray for it. That's what they did. They prayed for it. First step in getting boldness is asking God for it. God, give me boldness. And God, give me wisdom to know when to be bold and give me courage to do it. Look, because you got to, being bold is great. You got to know when to be bold. I was reading a story uh, this week looking at boldness uh, of a Delta airline pilot back in 2004. True story. You can look it up. He got, he got saved. He got involved in church and he was at a revival and he got on fire for God. And one day he, he's flying his plane and they, they, they're reaching their altitude. And he comes on and goes, oh, this is your pilot speaking. Or, you know, you know how they do that. But he comes on and goes, this is your pilot. I just want you to know that I got on fire for God this weekend. And I, I just know that God wants me to share the gospel. So he says, so how many of you? And he, he asked, he goes, how many of y'all in the back? He can't see me. He goes, how many of y'all in the back? You know for sure that you're going to heaven. You're a born again believer that you've accepted Christ as your savior. And you know, hands went up everyone over the place. He says, great. Y'all can put them down. He says, those of you who didn't raise your hands, if, I'm the, if I crash this plane right now and you don't know you're going to heaven, you better talk to one of these people. Now, he didn't crash the plane. He got fired. But that's bold. I mean, look, if my, if my pilot comes on and says that, I know I'm saved. And he has turbulence. I'm making sure. Oh, Jesus, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing that. That's bold. Not smart, but bold. So be bold, but be wise. We need boldness in Christianity today. We need the boldness of the first century church. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.